Welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Enabling best-in-class customer experience and operational excellence in a hyper-connected oil and gas world, TCS prioritizes problem-solving and leverages customer insights to drive real business results. To find out more, go to TCS.com. That's TCS.com. Welcome to another episode of the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host. It's great to have with us today Bob Tippy, a wonderful friend, former chief editor of the Oil and Gas Journal. Welcome, Bob. Glad to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. Bob, it's wonderful. And before we get really underway with some questions and views from you, I'd love to get started, but I really want to also thank, graciously thank, our wonderful sponsor, our great sponsor, and to thank the OGGN family. And if you will, those that are listening to this program, please give us a rating and review. It's under the show notes. We'd love to hear from you and like to hear what you think about our program. And then also, there's a survey that you can take. It takes about, uh, I think, less than 10 seconds. And that survey will give you an opportunity to get some stickers for your hat and for your hard hat and for your laptop, whatever you want to use it for, by all means. But anyway, welcome, everyone, to the Energy Fellows podcast. Bob, we go back a long time. I can't remember, actually, when we first met, but it was a few decades ago. And I remember having you, invited you, that is, to make presentations to the organization called the International Society of the Energy Advocates, where you presented an annual and sometimes mid-year projections on the oil and gas industry, the energy industry. And it was well taken. It was in Tulsa most of the time, sometimes in Oklahoma City, but most times in Tulsa. One time, I think we had it in Houston. But you've received awards from the energy advocates through the years for your outstanding journalism. And we really appreciate your leadership through the years, Bob, and appreciate your friendship. And if you will, there's those, you know, you've been on our, I know I've interviewed you on radio show. I had a monthly roundtable radio show in Tulsa, the weekly roundtable radio show, and then the National Energy Talk podcast, now the Energy Fellows podcast. So we've kept in touch through the years. And I believe you got started with the Oil and Gas Journal back around 1977 and, and then became a chief editor around 1999 or so. And I'm not going to talk about all your journey. I'd like to hear about your journey from you and, and how you got started. And please take your time on this because the audience would love to hear from you. I missed part of your question, but I think you were asking how I got involved with Oil and Gas Journal. So I'll address that. I was a newspaper reporter. I worked at the Tulsa World while I was attending the University of Tulsa. I went in the Air Force, served for four years, went back to the Tulsa World. And I wanted to get into the magazine business just because I was interested in magazines. I didn't have any particular interest in the oil and gas industry at that time. But position opened up at the Oil and Gas Journal, and I applied and got the job. I was told later by the guy, that, by the vice president who hired me, that I was the low bidder. So, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> but I quickly discovered that the, what I thought was just going to be a subject that I would cover while I learned the magazine business was fascinating. It was multifaceted. It was technically challenging, geopolitically intriguing, everything a journalist could want, you know, in terms of being engaged with the subject. I really enjoyed the challenge of writing for an audience that knew more about the subject than I ever could, because nobody can ever, you know, know everything about, about oil and gas in all its many dimensions. 
So I enjoyed that. I, you know, I learned something every day while I was working, and I continue to learn things about the oil and gas business now, now in retirement. It's a fascinating industry and certainly one of the most important in the world. Well, you're very missed. At the same time, you're still active. I know you write presentations, speeches, articles. In fact, I understand you uh, have an addition besides uh, energy writings. Tell about that. You not only, I'm speaking early here because I want to say more about your energy background, but it's quite intriguing that you're what you're writing now. I believe in the fiction, if I understand right. Yeah, I write mystery short stories. It's something I did while I was working full time because it was something I could do and go for you know months being too busy to do it and go back to. And I like short fiction. I enjoy mystery fiction. So I've done that for many years. My work appears occasionally in Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine and Mystery Magazine and some others. I don't want to sound like I'm regular because those are hard markets to get into, but I get lucky now and then. And that, that seems to scratch an itch I can't describe. But I do that between contract writing jobs and consulting jobs that I'm doing and and I'm doing some volunteer work. So I'm certainly staying busy in retirement. I, I want to as long as I can. Doesn't sound like you're retired by any means, but I understand what you mean <laughs> from the standpoint <laughs> of retirement. How many years were you with the Oil and Gas Journal? 42, 42 years. 42 long, long years. Long time. I, I, used to, I used, to tell, used to tell him I was going to stay around until I got it right. <laughs> well, you definitely got it beyond right. It's amazing all the contributions that Bob Tippy has made and a great, as I mentioned, a great friendship. You were very involved with our conference we had for about 30 years, 20 strong years, and then roundtables and different events for around 10 years. And that was the International Energy Policy Conference, which you spoke and also received awards there as well for your outstanding journalism. There's so many issues before us today, Bob, and I know there's those out there that would like to hear from you from a point of view of, you know, there's a challenge in the workforce these days, and especially in the energy business. There's some, you know, those that would like to enter the business but are fearful that they won't have a job 10 years down the road, or it's demonized to the point that in the oil and gas industry, do young people consider this even? And so what advice do you give to those that are trying to enter the, or want to enter the energy field but are a little bit reluctant to do so? What advice do you have for them? In short... I would say, you know, everything's about energy transition right now, but the cold hard truth is there can be no energy transition without fossil energy. And we can dive a little more into that if you like, because I think that's I think that's really important what's going on politically and economically right now. But people have been heralding the end of the age of petroleum since I got in the business. In fact, one of the questions I asked the interviewer when I interviewed at Oil and Gas Journal is how much longer can the industry last? Aren't we about ready to run out of oil and gas? Fortunately, he overlooked the naivete of my question and hired me anyway, again, because I bid low, I guess. But there's a lot more oil in terms of proved reserves now, low these many years later, these many decades later, than existed at the time that I joined, and we supposedly were about to run out of oil. And that was a serious, serious assumption at that time. It, it drove policy. One of the laws in the late 1970s relating to natural gas was we have to quit using natural gas under boilers and use coal instead because natural gas was too valuable to burn. And we needed to preserve it. Well, imagine that in the current, I don't want to say climate, the current environment, political environment, 
when everything, you know, everything pivots on climate change and exaggerations, you know, thereon too. So I guess that's all by way of saying that pessimism about fossil energy is not new to this generation or any generation. It's been there a long time. And yes, there is an energy transition. It didn't just begin. We've been in it for a long time. It will continue. We will electrify to some extent, but we will not do so without the consumption, the continued continued consumption of large amounts of oil and natural gas. It simply is not possible. And to pretend otherwise, as many regimes are doing now, is simply ludicrous. As far as tips to give to those that are young students, those that are senior fellows, all walks of life, I guess you'd say, in regard to the energy field, energy business, what tips do you have to give along the way? Maybe some habits also that you have that you'd like to pass along to others. Specialize, but not too much. That sounds contradictory, but you know, learn as much as you can about what fascinates you and what and what energizes you but don't specialize to the extent that you that you lose your peripheral vision and lose sight of context because all specialties exist within some matrix of alternative forces and influences and so forth and so many people bore so diligently into their specific field that they don't know what's going on or even how their field interacts with broader phenomena like economics and like politics. And I think that's the challenge in an age of specialty and especially in an energy business that becomes so specialized. Where does what you do fit within broader contexts of human endeavor? That's the advice I would give young people. Well, you know, I was fortunate and I guess you were too to be able to enter the oil and gas sector because of either mentors or those that, as far as energy literacy. I was involved back in my days in Washington, D.C., where I was assigned to do some research on oil and gas. And so I was, I got intrigued by it, and that's why I decided to go that route. How about yourself? What really got you to the oil and gas industry? You mentioned a little bit about that, your career and your journey. But even more so, how you got there to the finally go to the energy route, but also the literacy, energy literacy that's so important. And um, adding some questions to this is, what do you, would you reference to study as far as, and also tools to use, what magazines, what journals, what ways do you have to become more knowledgeable, but also to become acquainted with the oil and gas industry? Yeah, I think you almost have to go to specialist news outlets, think tanks. You're going to get, you know, specific points of view, but you know, you can't learn much about energy or what's going on by reading the newspapers. I just, I hate to say it, but I just, I think the mass media do a very lazy and deplorable job of covering energy and especially climate. I mean, that's all very one-sided. And that's why we end up with politicians who can be very myopic on that issue. And that's really too bad because it's self-defeating. I think you need to go to places, some fairly sophisticated places are like the Oxford Energy Institute that publishes free papers, quite good. Uh, Baker Institute of Rice University, that group publishes some good things. They're doing some interesting things on the materials challenges of the energy transition and the sustainability issues around the specialty materials that go into wind turbines and solar panels and electric vehicles and so forth. And, you know, there's some real challenges there that are just now beginning to get a little bit of attention in 
political discussions, but that are real issues and real geostrategic issues in as much as a lot of that stuff that we need for energy transition is going to have to come from China. So the Baker Institute is doing some good work there. Trying to think of some of the other places I used to check regularly. Those would be good places to start. And of course, those are academic, so the material can be a little bit deep. But pay attention, you know, pay attention to groups like that and view with skepticism some of the things that we hear politicians say and, you know, some of the policy things. I have a list of howlers that I've heard from politicians <laughs> over the years, you know, and they get away with it because nobody understands. Nobody understands energy. So it's. The general media are kind of ripe ground for propaganda and misguidedness. There are a lot of issues facing us, Bob, that we haven't touched on yet. I'm going to give you different subjects here, and if you will, comment about those, if you will. And we can go on to others as far as that goes. But we'll start off with ESG. ESG, what are your thoughts and where is it heading? ESG, the values and objectives of ESG are things that responsible companies and investors do anyway without being told. Unfortunately, ESG has coalesced into a political force, and we had the surgeons for at least a while of people who controlled, you know, trillions of dollars of other people's money, you know, saying we're not going to invest in fossil energy because, you know, it's going to contribute to climate change and lead to calamitous results. That assumption, the grounding of that political position and that power move, and it is a power move with all the money that people like that represent, is subject to debate. I know that part of my curmudgeonliness about the media is that they've just swallowed the climate propaganda, a hook, line, and sinker, and we get only one view. But the fact of the matter is there are real uncertainties and still are real uncertainties about the nature and extent of the challenge. Is climate change of human origin real? Of course it is. No, I am not denying that. I don't, you know, no reasonable person does, but the minute you question the popular orthodoxy, you're dismissed as a denier. And I think ESG leveraged off that, and unfairly so, and I'd take it a step further and say irresponsibly so. And I say that because we can't do net zero by date certain, which is the political formula. We can't decarbonize by date certain. We can't meet all these arbitrary and possibly ineffective political targets that are driving politics, except at great expense. You cannot replace cheap energy with costly energy without creating costs. It's that simple. And people say, well, renewable energy costs are coming down. But the fact of the matter is, when you're talking about high energy density energy like fossil energy and nuclear power versus more diffuse energy like solar, wind, and renewable energies, there are going to be cost disparities associated with the necessity of making the alternative sources usable. And that means bringing them into one place where you can use it, and that takes work. And that work requires energy, which is why, going back to what I said before, which is why you can't have an energy transition without using copious quantities of oil, gas, and coal. 
you still have to do the work. You have to build the machines. You have to build the windmills. You have to replace the windmills. You have to do some of the windmills when they're done, all that. You have to mine, the, mine all the elements that go into the energy transition. And we still are going to use fossil energy. So when the leaders of large chunks of money say, we're not going to invest in fossil energy, what they're doing is saying they are going to impose unnecessary costs on the rest of their portfolios. And that's what I mean when I say those stances are irresponsible. I'm glad to see that there has been some pushback, both by politicians and in the financial community itself, against that absolutist ESG at all cost stance. And I think, you know, we'll see a more reasonable outcome as things move forward. I just don't think, I don't think the ESG evangelists think it through and understand what they're doing to the cost structures of their non-energy portfolios when they take those stance. And I think that needs some scrutiny. Those are fiduciaries, after all. Rambling answer, but it's a good question. Bob, and there's a lot. Oh, my goodness. You could go into so much depth. There could be a whole subject on that, a couple of podcast episodes. But I think that's a great overview for what you've presented. When it comes to LNG, you know, from Western Oklahoma, Western Natural Gas Capital of the World, Elk City, natural gas capital of the world, the way we talked about it years ago in the deep gas in the 60s and the 70s and so forth. And now LNG's come to the forefront. Tell us about your view on LNG and its future. LNG. It's a fascinating part of the energy business right now. I mean, we are seeing the rapid globalization of natural gas, and it's happening more rapidly than I think anybody would have thought just a few years ago. Can gas ever be as fungible and, and as international as oil? No, because you can carry oil in a bucket and gas has to be contained and transported under pressure in case of LNG, cryogenically handled and so forth. But nevertheless, LNG is internationalizing very rapidly. And interestingly, it's not so much a technical revolution in terms of the liquefaction and the transport and all that, although there are some interesting things that happen, but it has to do more with natural gas supply and innovative contracts, which have made U.S. LNG supplies competitive in destination markets. The supply, of course, is the boom we've had in natural gas from shales. Turns out we have, you know, a world of natural gas in the United States and international markets beyond the reach of pipelines are now part of that business which means that a producer in, in Oklahoma, to some extent, is going to be subject to the international gyrations of gas and international trade. Gas prices have been low recently because inventories have been high and weather hasn't been as cold as in some key markets that as cold as it normally is. But also, there you know, there's been a tranche of demand that's been missing while the Freeport LNG plant was down south of Houston. And, you know, that has an effect. I mean, that gas had to go somewhere. And uh, instead of going into LNG carriers and heading to Europe, that gas was looking for domestic markets or looking for another international outlet. So that tends to suppress the price of gas, too, when an LNG plant goes down. So, you know, that's all by way of saying that just as oil producers had to learn to live in a market that was subject to international influences, natural gas producers have to do the same thing. I guess I should point out that the process I'm describing has definitely been 
accelerated by the cutoff of Russian natural gas to Europe and Europe's desperate need for natural gas and rapid development of regasification plants to absorb LNG from the U.S. and elsewhere. So that has certainly accelerated. That market's probably pretty well fixed now. I think Russia has done a good job of making itself a pariah state internationally and an unreliable supplier, a supplier willing to use oil and gas for political purposes, and that will cut into its market shares in both oil and natural gas. That's a major change in the market, certainly important about the future. Bob, when we're talking about LNG, what about CNG? CNG back in the 90s, I got involved with the, definitely looking at CNG. And now, what about the future? I mean, we've got natural gas vehicles or electric vehicles. Is there a future for natural gas that way? I haven't heard a lot about CNG. It may be because I'm just not in the day-to-day news business. I would think it would be politically difficult at this moment to create another transport market based on fossil energy when the political mood is strongly in favor of electric vehicles. That's not to say that I think the political mood will stay that favorable for electric vehicles over time, because I think there'll be some problems. I don't think the fleet will electrify as rapidly as political wishful thinking would want us to believe. But I don't see a way for a fossil fuel in, you know, in another form to make many inroads into transportation at this moment in history. That's just, that's not based on any market intelligence. That's just my reading of the political mood. Bob, where do you see our future when it comes to 2050? Look at 2050. And if we're around then, maybe we can be on an episode together. (laughs) But if you could tell me what your view is, our energy future in that particular year, what do you think it's going to look like? If you could have the crystal ball, here's what the future of energy looks like in the world and in the United States. Good question. 2050, I think we'll have in the United States, I would guess you conveniently chose a date beyond the political targets for (laughs) decarbonization and so forth. (laughs) So that leaves me a lot of room to use my imagination. Thank you for that. (laughs) I think that the net zero effort will crumble. It won't go away, but it will crumble and the pieces will reassemble in something more realistic than we see right now. I think we're seeing that happening in Europe already. I mean, the European Union this week was going to vote on whether to ban internal combustion engines by, I don't know, some close time. I forget I forget what the date was. But I mean, they delayed it because the Germans came to their senses and said, wait a minute, that's going to destroy our auto industry. Regardless of what President Biden says about American leadership and decarbonization, Europe is a lot farther down that road, and it has turned out to be a lot rockier than they thought. Energy prices are high. I just read recently that in England, they have what they call warming hubs, where people who can't afford to heat their homes can go to get warm. They're like little cafes, but they're just places to sit in a heated atmosphere. I mean, that's pretty stark. There's talk about deindustrialization of Europe because of high energy costs. The European Union is blind to all that and just keeps heading down the road to 
what they see as environmental righteousness. And politically, that just can't last. That's too much hardship on too many people. Frankly, it's too much official arrogance for most people to indulge. So I think kind of the same thing will happen in the United States if, I mean, we're, all, we're already seeing that. We're, you know, President Biden came in and said, we're going to not lease oil and we're not going to need, you know, we're, we're not going to lease federal land. We're not going to use as much oil and so forth. And the climate activists all cheered him, you know. Next thing you know, he's fussing at the oil companies for not producing enough oil and gas. And he's going over to Saudi Arabia that he disparaged when he first came to office with his hat in his hand, pleading for the Saudis to increase production. I mean, reality does set in at some point. And I think it will. And I think the reality will become political pushback against this aggressive, myopic, decarbonization, you know, where the climate is the is the priority for all policymaking approach that just won't work and that is not realistic. Does that mean we will abandon efforts on behalf of climate change mitigation? No. Does it mean we should abandon those efforts? No. It means that we should get real about it and realize that progress toward decarbonization won't happen because of arbitrary and unrealistic political goals, but will happen incrementally and not on anybody's political schedule. And we're going to have to accept that. What does that look like? Well, the only way we can address those cost disparities between renewable energy and and high energy density energy like fossil energy and nuclear, the only way to address those is to narrow the cost gap. The only way we're doing that right now is subsidizing renewable energy and electric vehicles like crazy, but that can't go on forever because it's too expensive. The other thing you have to do is raise the cost of the high energy density energy. What does that look like? That looks like a carbon tax. That's the only way to make long-lasting progress. I don't particularly want to pay it, but if we're going to do it, that's the only way to do it. Nobody wants to talk about a carbon tax because it's politically difficult, if not impossible. That being so, we won't make any progress. We will crash against the hard wall of physics and economics and political reality, and carbon will still be accumulating in the atmosphere, and global average temperature will be doing whatever in the world it's going to do. But how much, you know, how much cost are we going to impose on people before we get real and get serious about climate change mitigation? That's the question. You know, by 2050, we ought to be getting it right. So I would say that we would be electrifying transport where it makes sense. We would make some advances on the circular economy where we recycle more plastics and things, that's kind of a different subject, but it's related. We would still be burning fossil energy in vehicles or in economic sense. Fossil energy fuels would be more expensive because of a carbon tax if politics still supported work toward decarbonization, as I think it should. But we will have had time by then to learn from our mistakes and have abandoned this absolutist approach and this really extremist approach. And maybe then, you know, people could build pipelines when they need to. (laughs) It's very difficult right now. Oh, my goodness. We could continue on that again, another subject that's all by itself. But I appreciate you trying to answer in a few minutes what could take days (laughs) to go through. You've been listening 
to a great friend, not only a great personal friend, but a great friend to the energy industry for several decades out of Houston, Texas, a wonderful friend to all of us, and Bob Tippy, former chief editor of the Oil and Gas Journal. Bob, thank you for being on the Energy Fellows podcast, and I will remind folks the future of energy depends on us, depends on all of us. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure, and thank you for all the kind words. Great to talk to a good friend. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.